ready to go. And I'm grateful for uh, Josh and Grant have invested a, a lot. And today, uh, toward the end, uh, um, Thomas Bailey is going to help us out on verse 5. Um, very excited about that. Um, did you ever play in the NBA? Had Thomas played in the NBA, he could be T-Bay, is what we could call him at this point. So T-Bay at uh, um, about... 235 so get ready for uh for that um this i think we'll have to camp on this next week but i have never known the the we're just starting chapter five here lord willing but i have never made the connection and then now that several commentators are making it that the beginning of five five one to eleven really teams up well with Chapter 8, what, maybe starting 14 to 39? The end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 5, the commentators that really like putting chapter 5 to chapter 8 together as a group, which is our, our a big um, number of these commentators are doing this. In the past, I've always put the 321 to 521 as the part about justification, it seems like these guys are slicing and dicing it a little bit different and are starting chapter 5 to chapter 8 um, on hope. So uh, no matter how you kind of divide it up, um, Paul's linear argument here continues in a, in a really, really neat way. And so, um, Josh, would you read... Maybe let's start um, back there in 22 and uh, all the way to verse 5, uh, Lord willing, we can, we can make it to and, um, in chapter 5 and then pray for us and, and uh, start us with the, this idea on faith. Sure. Good. Yep, so chapter 4 starting verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Father, thank you for this opportunity again to think through Romans 1 through 5. And Lord, what a privilege it is to study your word. I pray that these truths would sink deeply into our hearts and grow our affections for you. Lord, help us to know your word and who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be. And I pray that you'd be with our study today. Amen. So I think maybe just to start, I wanted to, or Jerry asked me to summarize um, a little bit of some of the past stuff. And I wanted to talk about faith a little bit. And so I thought this was a really helpful uh, conclusion, I guess, from chapter 4, Doug Moo kind of drew out some summary principles of faith. Now, I just want to talk maybe faith more generally. But 
Um, from, from the last chapter, uh, a couple of the things that we, we learn about faith, number one, it's distinct from the law. Faith is different. It's utterly distinct from the law. Um, if the law is something that must be done, faith is uh, an attitude or, or entrance of what's already been done. Um, faith has power not in itself, but it rests in a person. That person, of course, being Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf. And then thirdly, faith is based on God's word, not sensory experience or, or evidence uh, gained from sense perception. And so that was from Doug Moo. Um, I was listening to a podcast that Ligonier puts out this week. I think the guy's name is Barry Cooper. And it's a really neat podcast. Maybe he takes maybe five, six, eight minutes to sort of summarize some big theological topics. I don't know if anyone in here has listened to it, but I really recommend it just because he synthesizes a lot of information in a short amount of time and it's really biblical, really precise. He's working through the text. And so uh, I was curious to see if he had done one on faith, and there was one. And I thought this was. Uh, interesting to me, and it was new for me as well, but he, I guess he pointed out that in the Reformed tradition, or in the, the Reformers kind of recovered this doctrine of justification by faith, um, and it was different from the, the Roman Catholic view that had gotten so rampant in the church up to that point in time, but he had these three categories um, on, on what true faith is, and um, the, the first one, I guess he gave these terms for him. Noticia was the first thing he said, and that meaning uh, we must know something. Faith mustn't know or have knowledge of something for it to be genuine faith. And uh, the second thing he said that's a marker of true faith is um, not knowing just a body of content is, is enough, but it's a conviction that that knowledge is true, that the truth or what Christ did actually happened. Uh, but he said, even if you have those two, you're still short of true saving faith. And the third thing being uh, fiducia, and um, that is a trust or a reliance on Christ, banking on him, uh, which is ultimately demonstrated by our works, uh, which reveal what we believe. And I just thought that was a helpful way to think through true faith, especially in our age that we live in where there's a lot of false or superficial faith that really doesn't have all three of those elements uh, to it. Can you go over those again real fast? Those are, That's really good. Mm -hmm. The so, foreign words that you're using there. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe I'll post it that way. Uh, yeah, we can listen do, yeah. to Barry Cooper go through it. But the first one, noticia, faith having an object. We, we must know something to be true. Yeah. I guess that would be information. The second term would be a census, um, knowing a body of content not being enough, but it's a conviction that that content of knowledge is true, belief that those things actually happen, that Christ did what he did. And then the third one being fiducia, um, trust or reliance on Christ. And I guess that would make faith, you know, James 2.19 says the demons affirm the truth, but they don't, uh, they don't love it. They don't bank on it. They don't put their, their trust in that truth. And so it's short of saving faith, and that would kind of be that third element, right. true faith. And that, and you can kind of test your faith a little bit to say, is it producing 
godliness? Is it showing in the way we live we live life? Yeah, it'll always true saving faith will always produce work. That's really good. Um, one of the commentators I think on that, on your first one, kinda said, um, or or it reminded me of that, is that true belief always involves thinking. Right? There is never belief without thinking. So I think thinking just becomes I used to have a big sign in, in my room that just said, think. I just think we, we don't think enough. Uh, I had one of my sophomores the other day, we were talking about assurance of faith. And so we were talking about what happens when you're really doubting, if you're truly a believer and, and you're facing b bouts of doubt. And he just says, I just take a minute and I just think. I thought that was really good. He just thought through all of what's happened, all of what Jesus has done all of how he's put his hope in Christ, and he comes out with the correct conclusion. So, Josh, really good on that. Verse 25, uh, before Josh is going to get to work on that, chapter 5, verse 1. But 25 um, sums up the gospel here. Who is delivered up for our transgression and raised for our justification. And so, uh, the bottom line is there that Jesus died because of our sins. According to Schreiner, his resurrection then authenticates and confirms our justification. So, I loved one commentator said, We sinned, therefore he suffered. We were justified, therefore he rose. Okay, so it was, it, that looks, it's a little bit backwards where you'd say, it wasn't that we um, were raised in um, the first it was because of our sin that he um, died. There's no doubt about that. But the second one is the other way around, is that um, it authenticates our, our justification, his, his being um, raising from the dead. And so just a great summary there um, of how that works. And, and let's always remember the two parts to justification. Just, just since justification is going to come up, so much and continually here through chapter five yet is that we one he died for our sins and that put us remember kind of neutral on the number line if you will we were sort of zero at that point as far as our spiritual well-being right it took away all the negative but we still didn't have anything on the positive side but at that same time all of jesus righteousness was imputed to our account. That's part of justification too. So that's why you have the sideways eight on your spiritual bank account that you get every night, right? And that's why in 520, let's sneak there just for a preview. We're three weeks away from this, but 520 is going to say um, a fascinating verse. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that means, well, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the idea is no matter, now certainly, this is never a license to sin, but if we do when we do, right, Jesus was an advocate, is an advocate, he's the propitiation for our sins, First John. So the idea is, 
on our worst day of sin as a believer, that grace still just smothers that sin. Grace, God's grace is always greater than our sin. Never a excuse to sin, never a license to sin, right? That's behind us. Chapter 6, we're going to feast on chapter 6. We're so thorough on that, but uh, I, lo I love this idea. Josh, this brings quite a peace. But oh, hey, you know what? Before we look at this, we, you're going to talk to us about the peace that we have now with God. We have to look at three passages, though, that are just amazing. When we think about our condition as an unbeliever, turn back a page to chapter 3. I don't want us for, to forget where we came from here because I think this makes it all the better. Verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now look, chapter 5. What was our situation? I think I might let you uh, search for these. Read in your own brain, if you would, 6 through 10. Read 6 through 10. Look for words there that uh, would, would not let us have peace with God. Look for those words. Four words that describe the unbeliever that are, I, they're just terrifying. They go with chapter 3, verse 10. Someone throw them out there. Ungodly. Good, ungodly. Yeah, weak. Sinners. Sinners. Enemies. enemies. That's it. Those four words. So we were enemies. I don't think the unbeliever sees himself as an enemy of God. But that's truly the position. And so when we look at it in that backdrop, oh, chapter 8, though. you got to go one more spot. Chapter 8, look at 7 and 8. And I don't know which of these is more devastating. You know, we are seeing five, probably 13 different phrases here that show what we were like as an unbeliever. Look at 7 and 8. Um, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. It can't. It does not. It cannot. And then look at verse 8. Those that are in the flesh cannot please God. So unbelievable today. When the day that you were justified, the minute you were justified, you went from being enemies, weak, sinners, ungodly, without any hope, to all of those, uh, chapter 3, worthless, um, couldn't find righteousness, couldn't seek God, couldn't please God. And then we come to this, Josh. It's overwhelming when we think where we came from. Yeah, so chapter 5, like Jerry said, marks a little bit of a shift in the letter. And uh, we'll get to walk through a couple of these today, but uh, the, the fruits of our justification, or as John Stott put it, our blissful consequences, or the benefits that we now have. And uh, it's been really fun to think about this week and just kind of meditate on this verse uh, throughout the week. And uh, listen to some really helpful stuff that I like to share. So, um, <clears throat> I think it's important to remember that this peace, firstly, 
comes as a result of our having been justified. And so Paul kind of marks the, the shift here. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's kind of everything he's taught through so, so far, he goes into this first benefit. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you think about peace, and I was thinking about it this week, it's kind of a universal human pursuit. You know, after a long day at work, you come home and we're looking for something to kind of take the edge off, uh, something to bring an inner sense of contentment or uh, well-being. And um, Stott called it a universal human obsession. I think in some way we're all seeking uh, peace in some way. And... Um, <clears throat> So, so what is peace with God, though? Um, there's really two elements to peace with God. And first, this, this really got me. The, the first side of this is an absence of hostility. Um, so when we say, or when Paul says we have peace with God, he's presupposing that we were at war with God. We were his enemies, rightly deserving his wrath. We were at enmity with God. Um, God hates the wicked evildoer, and that was us before our justification. And um, I want to look at just a few psalms that bring this out, and we, we can kind of set peace in, in front of this backdrop. But Psalm 5.5 5, um, says, You hate all evildoers. Verse 6, You destroy those who speak lies. Uh, Psalm chapter 7, verse 12 says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. Psalm 11, verses 4 and 5 says, The Lord hates the wicked and those ones who love violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And that's where all of us were prior to this peace prior to being justified by Christ. And ultimately, uh, that scorching wind, the portion of that cup Christ took on the cross, and he ended the hostility. He ended the war. He banished the enmity that was between us and God. And I want to just read some of this, this story from R.C. Sproul. Uh, this is from his book, The Holiness of God. Um, if you've ever heard him tell this story, it's, he's such a marvelous storyteller. I mean, it's one of the most riveting stories I've heard, but uh, you probably remember it from book club. It's the stickball game oh, yeah. with the clanging pots and pans. But uh, I'm going to read it just because it's, it's so good, and it captures this um, enmity that's been banished. So R.C. Sproul writes, <clears throat> I remember the summer sultry day in 1945 when I was busy playing stickball in the streets of Chicago. At that time, my world consisted of the piece of real estate that extended from one manhole cover to the next. All that was important to me was that my turn at bat had finally come. I was most annoyed when the first pitch was interrupted by an outbreak of chaos and noise all around me. People started running out of apartment doors, screaming and beating dishpans with wooden spoons. I thought for a moment it might be the end of the world. It was certainly the end of my stickball game. In the riotous confusion, I saw my mother rushing toward me with tears streaming down her face. She scooped me up in her arms and squeezed me, sobbing over and over again. It's over. It's over. It's over. 
the war was over and peace had come to us at last. Sproul goes on to say, That moment of jubilation left a lasting impression on my childhood brain. I learned that peace is an important thing, a cause for unbridled celebration when it was established and for bitter remorse when it was lost. And then he finishes like this. When our holy war with God ceases, when we, like Luther, walk through the doors of paradise, when we are justified by faith, the war ends forever. And I think that story just captures it so well. We were at war with God, and we rightly deserved his wrath, but through Christ, we now have peace. There's no more enmity. So that would, that would be kind of one side of, uh, of peace, this peace, um, peace with God. So uh, th- although the second sense um, is, takes it a little bit further, it, it's, it's a deep sense of a well-being. In, in the Hebrew, you've probably heard the term shalom. It's how many people still greet one another today um, with that phrase. And Doug Moose says it's an objective state of harmony with God that justified believers enjoy. Um, Lloyd-Jones said it's a man whose mind is at rest with God. And it's not a hypothetical thing. It's, it's based and grounded on a true reality. And, Can you yeah. tell us about your sinks crater that reminds you of this every day? I love that. <laughs> yeah, I've got it. <laughs> There's... We all need one of these. We yeah, all we need do. a sixth grader. This sixth grade student <laughs> is uh, one of the best students in our, our whole building. But every time he'll see me, I mean, it might be across the campus. He'll say, hey, Mr. Krause, and just throw up his deuces, throw up his peace sign. Every time, every day, all year long. Um, and now you'll get a new sense. Now you'll yeah. be like, hey, this is the subjective piece that he might not really be meaning, but you can I know you can put it there or an objective piece for sure. So those are sort of the the two senses, I guess, of this peace, um, the peace of God, the absence of hostility, and then the presence of an inward sense of serenity and uh, contentment. <clears throat> Do you think, from your counseling background? Why is it that sometimes the second one doesn't follow the for, for believers? For the believer, does we should always feel that peace that is true, right? Why why should we have the peace that surpasses all understanding? Philippians four six and seven, right? Be anxious for nothing. Oh, that's already a very convicting command because who of us doesn't have a little bit of worry or anxiety going on? Right, but in uh, anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and He'll give you the peace. Right, is that what you're talking about? That peace that surpasses all understanding. I wonder why we're slow to feel what's really true about us. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have an answer, but you know, I think there are so many enemies to the subjective peace. Yeah. Or, or one of the things that the commentators were pointing out is that. The subjective peace of God really flows downstream from peace with God. So the verse is talking about peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That's the only way we have peace with God. There's no other avenues of peace with God. But that's objective. That's final. That's been established. And then maybe 
what I was getting at earlier was kind of that subjective sense, that peace of God, that inner sense or inner understanding of that peace. And I really think there's a lot of enemies to that out in the world. I think our uh, when we're in sin, walking in sin, that mm-hmm. subjective sense may go away. For sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we look to false refuges, um, not going to bring instead, peace. Yeah, not going to bring peace. Uh, it's going to destroy that sense of well-being in our inner man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe we can kind of say, hey, do we need to head back to chapter 5, verse 1 and reestablish in our mind, in our thinking, to have faith that that is truly who you are, that you have peace with your maker and how amazing that is, right, coming from the hostility that used to be, and then to say, am I feeling that right now? That's a fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. And that should mark us. And don't you think in our world, you can kind of look at people's eyes and see, oh, there's a lack of peace there. Don't, can't you? I think our world today is filled with a, a lack of peace. And then even a hostility with each other. Don't you think, and Grant would love your thoughts on this too, but don't you think that this means that every believer should be at peace with every other believer? Right? We have an object of peace with our Father. We have the same Father. We're in the same family. And even one of the commentators, and I don't know how I've missed this for a long time, say that the pronouns have now changed in chapter 5. Right? It has turned to we instead of the singular. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so we are in this together as a church, as a Uh, universal church, every believer, I don't think that there can be ever a time that one believer doesn't have peace with another believer. Because we have peace with our Father. We have a subjective peace, so we have the peace of God. We have peace with God, which then ushers in a a peace of God, right? That surpasses all understanding, which then gives us peace with each other. Grant, any thoughts on that what makes us slow to experience that peace i don't think i can add anything that y'all yeah i think worry can go out the window and i think three to five will help us with that too but i think sometimes that worry or anxiety can cause a lack of lack of peace there certainly felt it this week yeah no i bet you i have too and i'm not it's not i don't think it's necessary really it's a sin. Josh, any? Yeah, I th- Tom Schreiner said this. P- Paul does not exhort believers to have peace with God or to make peace with Him, but he celebrates their peace with Him. Good. And it's the peace that was promised in the Old Testament has ultimately come to fulfillment through Christ. But uh, mm. I, I thought that was really helpful. It's not that we need to somehow make peace with God. Christ has established Done that. that. He's already made that happen. And uh, now it's a, it's a status, justification would be the status that we enjoy, and then peace is one of the benefits. I love that. So I, don't you think what we're hearing here is that we just need to celebrate it and enjoy it? Since it's true, let's enjoy it. Since it's true about us, and then others are going to see that difference. And they're going to say, hey, wait a second. We're living in a world that's not very full of peace. How do you keep operating with a you know, a different mindset, a different peace than, than what the world has. And then you can share with them. 
You know, this is that. This is what it is. Here's my guess. Every unbeliever is having, trying to, and not finding it, but trying to act like they have way more peace than they do. They don't have a lick of peace. They're enemies of God. They're hostile toward God. They have a, they're in bad shape. They're in way worse shape than what they even realize. And for the believer, once again, if we really believed one-tenth of what we said we believed, we would be ten times more excited about it. If we really believed one-tenth of what this chapter 5 verse 1 is telling us, we would be ten times more peaceful, I think. And, uh, and so I guess that's convicting to me because I'm with Grant. There were times this week not as peaceful as what I should have been in my subjective peace. But let's make that objective truth more reality me to it. And I think chapter 5 and chapter 6 are maybe the best in Romans to help establish that. Chapter 8 will be too. But those will really help us as we begin to meditate on that. Grant, verse 2 mm-hmm. is chock full of some sort of truth here. Yeah, yeah, it is. I like your phrase, Josh. The You said the blissful consequences. Yeah, that was for the stock commentary. I think he's quoting somebody else, but yeah. Okay, that is really good. So we'll, we'll continue on with the blissful consequences of justification. Is that how you put it? Mm-hmm. Of justification. Um, and so I'll be continuing with the what we see in verses 2 and uh, 5 with faith, grace, and hope. Hope coming up in verse 2 and 5. But Josh has already really pointed it out, the relationship here between faith um, in verse 1, justified by faith, but it's through, you know, the faith is in a person, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it's accomplished, uh, not simply just through on the basis of the faith. And it's reiterated again in verse 2, through him, that's Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So by faith we're, re- we're united to Christ and it's through him that we have this access to this grace that we stand in. And so starting with the word grace um, that we're standing in, also it's, you could say it, um, we have obtained introduction. I think maybe that's the NASB or the LSB, introduction uh, into this grace in which we stand. I think that's a great way of putting it. But uh, grace is normally defined as unmerited favor. That's how, you know, you'll hear R.C. Sproul define it that way, and that's the catechism definition of grace. Um, but in this case, Schreiner, Stott, and Moo all agree that this is more generally speaking about uh, being within the sphere of God's grace or our privileged position of acceptance by him, not merely just his favor towards us, but us being positionally um, uh, in a position of acceptance by him in his sphere. And I think that's something really worth meditating on because uh, we're standing within a privileged position of God. And if we think about how the New Testament describes this or even how Paul will further describe it in chapter 8, he uses the, uh, the words of sonship uh, or God being our Father, our Heavenly Father. And I think that's um, worth pondering on because that's such a, a, I don't know, an extreme statement that we're sons of, of God, not just that we have... We don't just have peace, but it's one step beyond that. We have this unlimited access into this uh, grace of God as sons or daughters of the king. And so we have all the access that a child has. 
through the work of Christ, we are not only justified, but stand in a position of privilege, access with uh, access to the Father at all times. It's not like we appear before the king having obviously transgressed the laws of his kingdom, and he looks upon us and has mercy, uh, but sends us on our way with a warning to not transgress again. Uh, we're not just forgiven and then excluded from the presence of the royal family, never to see him again except perhaps with further transgression and judgment. But instead, the king declares us in the right before him on the basis of his son. We have rebelled against his rule, but now he says we are forever at peace. He invites us to come sit at table with him as a royal son. He adopts us into his family. We have access to him at all times to call upon him for wisdom counsel and strength we can personally thank him daily for his unmerited favor towards us we live within his presence or his court so to speak and i think that's just a wonderful way of describing this access that we have through our lord jesus christ uh continually to being able to stand um, in the grace that we have can i throw out an illustration that sure. mark gave you maybe heard this but he said if a survey if you're if you're the king, we've never been the king, but if a servant goes to the king, wakes him up at like 3 in the morning and asks for a glass of water, he's going to say, get your own water, pal, right? You know, quit bugging me. I'm sleeping. But if his two-year-old son, right, three-year-old son, like toddles in there, hey, Dad, I'm thirsty. You know, the king, what does the king do? The king gets up and gives his son he has great excitement to serve his son in that way. It's an easy guy. And that's us. That we, we can go to the Father's access. Mark was talking about an all-access pass. Is there such a thing? I don't think I've ever been to an event. Maybe that that you get that. But that's what we continually have with God. An all-access pass to all the time. There's this, this week I've been trying to get some people on the phone that's been impossible. Right, you punch in two, and then you punch seven, and then you go on hold, and then a half an hour later someone picks up, and then they say, um, oh, you're not at the right place, and then you punch in, and then you hold your toes right, and then later on you just get hung up on. They're like, oh, no. Like, there's no access. There's no real people to talk to, but there is with the Lord. And I just think he never puts you on hold. He never asks you to punch seven and then three and then it's it, it's incredible the access because the curtain was torn right now we have access because they didn't have that kind of access in the Old Testament I think it's I think I'm overwhelmed by that thought and I want to go so that how does that tie into the anxiety or the lack of peace we have a lack of peace when we don't you when we don't go to him. He's right there. He's inviting us. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. Great. Yeah, that's that's really good. And But I think the weakness of my analogy with the king is it kind of smushes together the already and not yet nature of our being in the presence of the Lord. Of course, we have, um, in a sense, his presence with us through the Holy Spirit, and he hears our prayers. We have access through that. I've, I used to think about that when I first became a believer of, like, what if God just didn't even listen to me? What a frightful thought. You know, crying out to him, he just doesn't listen. No access. Doesn't want to hear. Uh, will never hear. It was, it was a frightful thing to think about at the time, and it could have been that way, and I would have only uh, interacted with him in wrath, but that's not the way it is now. Um, but that's what we're hoping for, is his appearing. Um, 
when we see him as he is, when we see Christ as he is. And that's the next thing that Paul's getting to. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice or uh, exult in the hope of the glory of God. So the next thing is uh, the hope of God. So we're hoping in the glory of God to come. And hope today is not really used like what it's used here. You know, we say... I hope the weather is nice this weekend, or I hope I don't get sick before this trip, or I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon. It's just a, a feeling of expectation or a desire for something to happen with uh, no real indication that it will or won't based on the desire. That's how we use it today. But that's not the biblical sense in which Christian hope is presented. It is a joyful or confident expectation that rests on the promises of God. That's how it was presented for Abraham. He hoped uh, in hope on the promises of God. And we're hoping for the, and we rejoice in this hope, so it's a certain thing. We're exulting in it. It's not just uh, a fearful expectation or a hope of the weather for the weekend. We rejoice or exult in it, so we know it's a certain thing, or Paul is presenting it as a certain thing of the glory of God. And that one is something that I guess I didn't, I never really feel like I fully understand the phrase the glory of God when it's used. There's just so much that goes with it. But I do think there's some things I can uh, present here. Uh, the glory of God that we hope in is a gift of grace. It comes from God and is his nature and character which is granted to believers and reflected by them. We still await for this future glorification which will involve moral perfection and restoration to the glory Adam lost when he sinned. Uh, we know that we're not for, uh, morally perfect yet, or otherwise we would possess God's glory now, and the growth in godly character described in verses 3 and 4 would be superfluous, it'd be extra. Uh, the hope in this glory is a sure confidence. It doesn't mean uh, the believers long to experience God's glory but are not sure whether it will come to pass. Believers are certain now that the glory Adam lost will be restored to them. Indeed, the glory restored to believers will be even greater than the glory Adam once had, for believers will be conformed to the last Adam, Jesus Christ. That was from Shriner, which I thought was really helpful. And glorification is his, uh, God's honor, his praise, his majesty, and holiness. And I think that idea is what we're hoping for when, when Christ returns. His glory will be manifestly displayed in his judgment and our glorification. We will see him as he is. We will be like him. Um, and all of that will be realized in us. Uh, instead of being mortals burdened with sin nature, we will be changed into holy immortals with direct and unhindered access to God's presence. We will enjoy holy communion with him throughout eternity. And considering glorification, we should focus on Christ, for he is every Christian's blessed hope. Also, we may consider final glorification as the culmination of sanctification. So it's what we're hoping for. It's what we're looking uh, towards. And this is, I think, reiterated in chapter 8. Uh, that starting in verse maybe 23 and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for we hope for who hopes for what he sees but we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience yes that's great and then not only look at that Verse 3, not only that, like if that wasn't enough, I love this. Again, for practical everyday life, this is huge. But we rejoice in our sufferings. If there's anything that doesn't even sound 
possible that you can rejoice in your sufferings. Not that your sufferings are good, but because they produce this. Look at this. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Next week, we want to think about a little bit more on three and four and just the great... Um, uh, advantages, the great privileges that come with suffering. That suffering for the believer is a good thing. But Thomas, help us with both this this hope and love in verse five there. Because what a what a beautiful phrase to finish out verse five. Yeah, um, it's what hit me um, the most out of this passage. Um, verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Um, and this is one of those um, benefits of justification by faith where um, Paul moves from all the objective aspects of our security in Christ to the internal, more subjective. Um, and this is uh, subjective evidence of permanent salvation, evidence that God himself implants within our deepest being, and that we love the one who first loved us. And um, Lawson, Dr. Lawson points out that um, this is agape love. It's divine love characterized by sacrifice in the pursuit of another person's good. Um, he says agape love seeks the highest good of the one loved. Um, God is giving, giving, giving of himself, his son, his spirit, and nothing is withheld. Um, you can go to Romans 8.32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Um, so in God's love, not only has he given us his son, but he's also given us his spirit, too. And um, Paul says that um, or I'll start here. The, um, the Holy Spirit is a gift to believers when we are converted and justified through which God's love is poured into our hearts. And then um, Piper has some really interesting um, perspectives on um, um, on the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He says that um, in Galatians 4, 4 through 6, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship, because you are his sons. God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So again, you have some um, objective um, aspects, but then at the end there, you have the subjective that you feel. Um, and like, so we have, and because you are sons, we're talking about um, a legal transaction taken on the cross, um, 
that's subjective, but then God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, which is subjective, and um, our hearts are in view. Um, our hearts are a place of spiritual experience. Um, and it's the experience of perceptions and the experience of affection. Because we are legally sons, God gives us the experience of sons. The spirit of the Son of God is sent into our hearts and cries um, in our hearts, Abba, Father. And um, one interesting thing that I never realized was that the word crying, when you're crying, Abba, Father, it doesn't mean um, lament. Um, the word is basically always connected with weep. Um, and that's not the meaning here. It's a cry of just unspeakable joy. It's saying, I have God as my Father. I have peace. And um, in Romans 8.16, it says, um, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Um, we don't hear a voice inside of us saying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, as though we were separate from the experience watching it happen and then deciding whether we like it or not. This is the spirit of the Son of God taking possession of God's child and giving voice to our spirit. Um, so this is the experience and the inner voice of the spirit and world child of God. Um, and it's the spirit of the Son of God crying, Abba, Father, in and with our spirit. So it's just, um, just experiential evidence that we are in fact blood-bought children of God and um, it's just awesome. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and there's almost no way to express it. Like I feel like this passage, like all of Romans, you try to think about it and you try to teach it and you try to meditate on it and it's a hundred times better than what we can even think or say. But let that show in the way we live life this week. Let there be a peace that surpasses all understanding. Let's show others the same love that he's showered in our heart. Uh, one commentator said he doesn't just dribble this on with a draw. It's like he lavishes that love. Remember uh, kind of the language of John and 1 John. That love is lavished in our heart. We think about Mother's Day today. And we think about the way our moms lavished love into, our, into their children. The way fathers do that and uh, that's the way God's done it for us so let's do it for others. Grant would you pray for us um, that uh, we would really experience what we truly are um, this week. Sure. Heavenly Father thank you for this day and for the discussion that we have had on your word. Thank you that we have your word in our language and that we can safely meet as a local body and discuss it openly and freely uh, with no fear. And Father, thank you for the truths that are in verses 1 to 5 for all the things you have done for us through uh, Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray that we would truly believe these things um, about us and that it would change um, how we feel and act through the week, that we would have um, your peace in us knowing that we are at peace with you through what you have done for us, Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week and kind of an assignment, if you would. Uh, think about ways that you have suffered, that God has brought suffering into your life, 
and how that has produced a perseverance, a character, a hope, how God's used that to make you more mature and complete in Christ. Feast on that this week, and we'll uh, start with it um, next Sunday, Lord willing. Thank you.